You're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Okay, today's guest is Melissa Johnson. She's out of San Antonio, Texas. She's a business and life coach, as well as a real estate investor and an artist. She's been investing for 18 years now, has done over a thousand transactions via notes, flips, uh, just all kinds of real estate investing. Melissa, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for, for letting me come on as an early guest. I feel special. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I read in your profile that you are an official member at the Forbes Real Estate Council. Tell me what that what that means. So it's a really cool thing. Um, found out about it a few years ago. Um, I had a friend, actually, I was in a mastermind. And uh, I noticed that he was posting all this, you know, publishing Forbes and Forbes and stuff. So I talked to him about it. And he said, yeah, you just, you know, you go on the site and you check it out, but they have to vet you first. So it's, it's really a special kind of thing. You know, I had to go through an interview process. I had to prove, you know, how much money I was making. I think I had to send them like a profit and loss because you've got to be a seven figure or above earner um, to oh, be included in that. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was like a really, a, it's a cool thing to do. I like doing it. I like educating people and sharing. So Forbes is a great platform to do that. I write a lot of articles for them. Um, and then they also do like periodically these kind of quick questions, like ask the experts. So we get to chime in with, you know, it'd be one question, but several different people answering. So it's kind of nice to have those different perspectives of, you know, how people are doing things all over the country, but it's been great. And it's great for credibility. Really is. Yeah. I didn't put Forbes on anything. It's good for credibility. Honestly, I wish yeah. I know that you, no one would ever say, Hey, say this about me, but I wish I'd have known. Cause I'd have just, your, your introduction would have been, she's a seven figure real estate investor. Owner. <laughs> 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 I think credibility is already uh, built in with that one. So awesome. So what is that? What is that uh, real estate council with Forbes allowed you to do? Is it open some doors for you? Um, it has. And mostly I just, I've approached it as a credibility builder, just, you know, as a, a way to position myself as an expert um, in what I do. I've been doing this for 18 years. So I feel like I know my way around pretty well. I'm always, there's always new things to learn, but that's a great way for me to share with people and also to connect with people um, that might be looking for a little extra help. Yeah. So 18 years. So you started investing roughly 2003 mm -hmm. and you do flips. I do. I so do. I'm rehabbing. guessing, you know, I'm guessing, you know, what question is coming up next, uh, I think in so. 2008 timeframe, a lot of flippers, uh, got out of the business or got, got caught up in the business. Uh, and you know what it's, 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 you don't find too many investors these days that actually made it through a crash because a lot of us got started well after the crash and feel like we're on fire and it's pretty easy to be on fire in a fire market. Right. So, oh, yeah. uh, can you tell us what your experience was, where you were, uh, right before the crash and then how you got through it? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously up until that point, it was great, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were just flipping houses, no problems. Um, doing a lot of deals and then, you know, the, the crash came and, I think, I don't really know that we fully understood or appreciated what was happening at the time. Cause you're just so in that moment, you really go into, um, problem solving like crisis mode, sort of when, when things start falling apart. 
But the thing that I learned from that, the biggest takeaway that I learned and the thing I realized was that, um, and this is like so important moving forward and take note of this for right now too, is that you've got to be able to pivot in your business. You can't stay committed to just one exit strategy all the time because shifts and changes happen in the market. And I've been doing this long enough to understand that you know, like it's hot and it's great right now, but eventually there's going to be a crash. There's going to be a correction and then things will, you know, right itself. And, but this is just how real estate is. So you've really got to understand, first of all, that that's going to happen. Like things aren't going to be easy all the time ever because there's too many other variables there, you know, the market being the biggest one. But once you understand that, like we were able to, because we had done so many different types of deals before that, we were able to deploy the right exit strategy at that time. So what happened was in 2008 and a little bit after that is, you know, you couldn't sell a house. So we had properties that we had bought right before, but we couldn't sell anything because banks weren't making loans. And so luckily um, when we started, not only were we rehabbing, but we were also rehabbing and selling houses, you know, retail, but also creating owner finance notes. And then we would um, package the notes. We had a note buyer and we would, you know, either sell them off one at a time after they were seasoned. So seasoning, meaning you had to hold it for a certain amount of time before you could sell the note. And then you only get a percentage of the note that you created, but you're cashed out and you're done. Um, So before 2008, it was real easy to sell a house on owner financing, create that note, and then hold the note for 90 or 120 days, whatever it was, I don't remember. And then... um, cash out of it. And we kind of stopped doing that for a while. But then when 2008 came, we were like, we have these houses that we can't move. So we were actually able to, the only way we could move properties was selling them on owner financing. So we didn't make a lot of money, but two good things came out of that. One is we survived. Yeah, that's <laughs> We made enough one. to survive. Yeah. And then two was that because we survived, we were able to be in a great position once the market corrected itself, you know, okay. because yeah. we were able to hold on. Like the, this sounds awful, but I always call it the toilet flushing, right? Because oh, like so many investors, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was like when the toilet flushed, there was only a small handful of us left. And so, you know, we were back in business, you know, getting deals, but that, you know, another side effect too from that was that it was really a great chance to build our passive income by yeah. buying all those. And we would just hold the notes at that point because they weren't worth selling anymore. It wasn't like yeah, it sure. was before that. So we would hold the notes. So now you're sitting here with, you know, 30 something properties that you've got notes on. And were they performing notes at the time? Mm-hmm. Well, that, so, so correct me if I'm wrong. In a moment where uh, no one, you can't sell the properties because the banks aren't lending. You guys are essentially becoming the bank and you're not selling to, to get big cash out, right? But you right. are at least drawing an income, a passive income from those properties. Right. And so it's that's not a great much, pivot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not much initially, but you know, you're getting the down payment, which is helpful. You know, that's, you know, several thousand dollars, whatever. But then, you know, you're making money off of, the note with the interest, because when we're doing an owner finance note, we're charging a higher interest rate than you're going to get from a bank. So, and what we would do was we would actually, um, they're called wraps. So we would wrap that note 
So we would have an underlying note that was maybe like five years or so. And then we would, you know, sell the property on a 30 year note. Okay. So you think about it, we paid it off. So we made sure that we were at least somewhat cash flowing for that first five years, you know, breaking yeah. even or cash flowing a little bit. But I was okay with taking that risk because I wanted to pay off quick. So five years, you know, after the crash, everything is starting to pay off. Okay. And then you're looking at 25 years of interest. Do you still do you still have a lot of those notes in your name from those homes or have you sold them off? No, I actually I have some of them. So I went through a divorce last year, early last year, and you know assets had to be split up. So I did lose some of those notes, but yeah. I didn't sell any of the notes. I've kept all of them and probably will continue to and I'd like to get more. Is the is that currently your strategy is to purchase a house, renovate it? owner finance it and keep the note? It depends for me on the property. Okay. I won't do it with any property. It's got to be the right the right property for me. And I have criteria for all my different investments. So I've got, you know, a criteria for something I want to rehab. I have criteria for wholesaling a property. I have a criteria for rental and a criteria for owner finance notes. Okay. So what is what is your uh what does your deal flow look like? I mean, what are you doing right now? I've seen your marketing. Your marketing is great. So I'm guessing you've got some sort of strategy out there to bring deals into you. If you could um, you know, ex explain in general what it is that you do, the methods that you take, or some of the secrets that you have. So for me, um, I still, I guess I'm kind of old school probably because I've been doing it for so long, but I like marketing to motivated sellers or sellers in general. Yeah. I buy everything off market. Um, I don't buy from wholesalers. Not that I have anything against wholesalers. I wholesale myself too. Yeah. But um, I just can't ever make the numbers work on the deals that I that are brought to me as wholesale deals. Yeah. So I don't buy them that way. I don't buy off the MLS. And I know people do and have a lot of luck with that. For me, it hasn't been that great. Um, so I just choose to um, really focus my marketing on just direct to sellers. And I try to be really concise with my marketing. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that'll just pull a list and there's thousands of names and they're just like mailing postcards out. Like it's nobody's business, you know, like yeah. mailing out like 10,000 postcards a month, just shotgunning, but basically. Yeah. And that method can work. I'm, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but over the years, what I realized, especially when I started taking deep dives into the marketing performance aspect of it, you really realize how much money you're actually throwing away by running your campaigns like that, by just throwing out, you know, I try to teach people like just because somebody's on a high equity list doesn't necessarily mean they want to sell the property. So mm -hmm. you're kind of wasting your time and money. So for me, I would rather be very focused and targeted on who I'm marketing to. I have a very specific message for them, a very specific sequence of mailers that we do to kind of guide them through, you know, from the beginning of, hey, we're here, this is what we do for you, down to, you know, seven or eight pieces of mail later where the, it's escalated, you know, to the point of, you know, what are you going to do if you don't sell your house kind of a thing. So, so to break this down, um, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, right? So essentially you, and do you only send out mailers local to where you are? I do. Okay. I, so. I really am a firm believer in being a master of your market. 
Okay. So you're in San Antonio, Texas, which is what's the population? A, a million or so close to? I, yeah. I think it's like 1.2 million or something. Okay. So what you're saying is the majority of people will just take anybody who has a house and they've owned it for a long enough time to where if they sold it, they would be able to walk away with a bunch of money. That's what them having a lot of equity in it. Right. A lot of the wholesalers will assume, well, if they have the ability to make a bunch of money, then I should contact them because and give them that opportunity. You take it a step further than that and say, uh, what? Like, what are you looking for? What's the criteria before you mail to somebody uh, with the highest probability that they would like to sell their home to you and potentially even at a discounted rate than before they brought it to the market? So the key is to find multiple motivators. Um, so there's only two, two marketing really tactics that I use. So right now I'm only marketing to probates, which is, I love marketing to probates. I love probate deals because okay. um, they're, they're a little bit, it's a lot more work, but those deals convert better. It seems like, and, and, and you really have to be like high touch hands-on with those kind of deals. Um, so that's one that I'm marketing to. The other is um, I do list stacking quite a bit. Okay. So what I like to do is, you know, we'll drive for dollars, we'll pull a list, you know, we'll have a list of all the properties that we looked at. And of course, I also still, even though you're driving for dollars, just because the house looks like a piece of crap. Junk, you can say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the gorilla like, estate uh, podcast. <laughs> okay. It was a piece of shit. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just because it looks like that doesn't mean that they're in distress, you know, or something. Because yeah. a lot of times it might be an absentee owner that's a landlord and they don't realize the tenants have junked out the property or something. So, you know, there's a lot of other factors. So what I like to do is, you know, drive for dollars, pull all these properties into a list. We put them in prop stream, like my favorite tool right now is PropStream. If you're not using it, you should look into it. Write it's it down. Yeah. I can send you a link for it too, if you want. Perfect. But um, I dumped the list into PropStream, but PropStream is like a data center, basically. I mean, this, this software is amazing. It does a lot and it gives you just like, it's just like data, data, data. So you can pull up an address in there and you can find, you know, how much the estimated mortgage is on the property still, if they owe taxes, how long have they owned it, who the owners are. You can do skip tracing through there. You can actually do mailings through there. So I take that drive for dollars list, upload it into that system, but then you can also put filter and criteria on there. So from that list, okay, it's like, now I know that house looks like a piece of shit. Let's get to the bottom of this though. Like, do Is there high equity? So we're going like 55% or higher equity. Okay. And then we want to know, is it an absentee owner? Um, is it owned by a company? Because okay. we get a lot of that too. Like it'll be in a land trust or an LLC or something like that. And so those we usually take off the list too, especially if they own multiple properties. It's like they probably just bought it. Um, okay. We're also filtering out anything that might be listed on the market, on the MLS. We pull those out. Um, we don't throw those away. We just put them in a different bucket for in the meantime. Um, but we want to try to find as many motivators as you can to stack that list. So you might go from a list of 100 properties down to like 50, but you have to understand you're being very targeted at this point. You know, if you can't talk to them about their high equity, you also see, well, they got a tax balance that's probably a problem, or there's a lien that they owe money on, or 
you know, something else is going on too. Maybe they're on a water shutoff list or something. So as many things as you can try to um, put into your list stacking to create this list, it's very, very, they should be highly motivated. And then you've got to craft the right message to speak to them. So it sounds like everything that you're doing is you take an entire market, distill it down to the ones with the biggest problems that you know how to solve, right? Or at, at least you you break it down to problems and create a message to that person on how you can bring solutions to them. Because a lot of these people are uh, probably willing to sell their property, but they're just looking at it saying, I don't want to put this on the MLS. Like nobody's going to want to come buy this. And they don't know that there's people like you out there looking for it saying, I will definitely buy it. And I will get it ready to bring to market and make it where somebody like a normal family would love to come live in this. So that's right. that's awesome. So you basically said that you you look for probates, you look for fifty five percent equity or above, uh, you look for tax delinquencies, water shut off, things like that. Can you put all of that into a prop stream, and it'll 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 produce mm-hmm. a list? Yes. So, well, what I'm doing. Well, my probates are separate, right? Because. I don't, you can buy probate lists, but I'm always kind of iffy on that. We do, we actually pull the probate list ourselves. Um, we figured out. Where do you pull that from? Is that the county clerk? Yeah. We, um, we've actually figured out the process now. So where I'm at, you almost have everybody says, well, you got to go down to the courthouse and get this stuff. If you dig hard enough, though, we actually figured out how to find everything online. So we don't have to go to the courthouse at all. It is a process, it does take some time, but it's, all those extra steps, if you can take the extra steps to get the deal, it's the stuff most people don't want to do because it's too much work, right? Yeah. Are you digging it's through just... obituaries? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. We, we go. So the, it's a process, but I mean, you have to go to a couple of different sites to kind of get all the information together. But in okay. the end, like we don't have to stack criteria for probates because we know that motivation is already, there's an inheritance there. You know, there's an inherited property. So explain, explain, explain to us why probates are such a targeted uh, area for you. Like what, what makes probate such a good property to buy? Uh, For us, it's just been time proving that concept. You know, I, I analyze all my marketing. So I break all my marketing down periodically, like quarterly, and we dig into, okay, like here, like here's probates, here's a high equity mailing that we did. We did some Facebook ads. We did some PPC. We've got our our organic traffic to our website. And then um, when you plug all that information in, you start to see over time, like probates perform really well. Like we've been able to convert those at a high level. So that is a place where you need to spend more time. You know, you're getting those deals. So you need to spend some more time on that. And I'm okay with that. I have some, not, I wouldn't call this a probate, but similar experience because, uh, and this is happening now I'm, I'm under contract due to close next month on a, on a hotel down in Louisiana and, uh, it's friends of family, right. Uh, brought it to me. And the reason it's such a good deal, it's not a probate. Like I didn't, I didn't like cold call these people and say, Hey, I'm an investor. I understand that you just inherited a house. Uh, how can I buy it from you or whatever? And I know that that wouldn't be like the, the route that you take, but that's, but it was brought <laughs> to me. Calling with probates did not work well. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's like give people their time, but this is, uh, I'm, I'm buying it from a, a friend of mine's mother. 
the reason she's selling it is because her husband was an investor. They built this hotel out from like from the ground up. They basically took an old bank, converted it into an eight unit, fully functioning hotel, like staff and everything. A uh, very small scale, but a beautifully done hotel. Um, and once he died, she ran it for a while, but she's just run out of steam, right? So she, I don't know that you would call it she inherited because they were married. It wasn't like children got it, but she no longer wants to operate it anymore because he's not around and that was their dream and stuff like that. So for me, I can see the the value in probate because a lot of people, this just kind of fell in their lap. It wasn't their plan. They don't know what to do with it. They're not necessarily real estate investors, but they know there's value in it, but they're not, they don't have the time to get the top dollar. Is that kind of the same story that you see with all the probates or do you typically uh, see, find yourself in the middle of some sort of custody battle or whatever you would call it on, <laughs> on uh, the, you know, there's 10 different kids that got to split up the assets or, or, or maybe there's only one, like uh, kind of walk me through some of the probates that you've seen and, and how it's worked out good and bad, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's crazy stuff. I would say like eight out of 10 is how you described, you know, they're just, they're tight. It fell into their lap. They don't really know what to do with it. Um, you know, a lot of times they, it's in disrepair, you know, it's, um, especially when an older person's been there, you know, the house hasn't been updated in probably forever. Um, or there's like wheelchair ramps all over the place and just like, they just, they don't know what to do with it. You know, yeah. they live far away. They don't want to, you know, have to deal with dealing with tenant. A lot of them don't want to be landlords and stuff. So a lot of times it really is just becoming more of a, let's just get rid of this thing and get this monkey off our back. And gorilla. the gorilla, <laughs> get the gorilla <laughs> off your back. <laughs> and so that, that's a majority of them, but then you do get the ones here and there that are a little bit more challenging where maybe, um, somebody's passed away and there's no will, you know, so that takes a little bit longer because then you've got to do like an affidavit of airship. You've got to track down all the potential heirs, see what their situation is. Um, and we've had some weird ones too, where it's just like, you know, somebody, a, a married couple owned the property and then one of them passed away. And then one of the person got remarried, but there were kids from the previous marriage and then their kids from the current marriage. And then oh, that, man. that spouse God. dies. And it's just like, and somebody's usually in jail. Like there's oh. always, you know, there's um, definitely sometimes more work with those probates just because it's a lot of um, when you've got a lot of heirs and things like that, or wills that haven't been probated like that is a more of a time consuming thing. So it's not really, it doesn't make the deal any harder to do, just makes it take a little bit longer. Okay. So uh, let, let's fast forward here to, to kind of today, right? Uh, you're still flipping houses in today's market? I am. I is the, like flip some more. <laughs> is is uh, the San Antonio market booming like the rest of the country is right now? You know, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, it's booming as far as like when you get something on the market to sell, it's gone. I mean, yeah. we just did one. Um, we did a great deal. Uh, we closed on it on Friday, funded yesterday. Um, it was a really, really good deal, but we need more, you know, and, and what I'm hearing from investors all over the country is that it's, it's harder to get deals right now because the market's so hot and people are just listing and selling for like way over asking price. I talked mm -hmm. to some, I thought I was doing good getting like 15 over asking I talked to a lady the other day and she said they were getting offers a hundred thousand over asking 
Jesus. That just blew my mind. <laughs> God. Wow, man. And so um, with that, like, and, and we're seeing the same thing. Like we, we look in the Florida market a lot and we're pretty much getting laughed off the lot because our criteria uh, that would give us a return for our investors, uh, ourselves, is not me. Like it's almost like everybody's throwing everything out of the window. Like it, there's no, I don't care about a return. I just care about ownership. Um, and I'm get, I'm guessing that in every market for people who are actual savvy investors not working with institutional money, they're just looking to store somewhere. It has made it really hard to get deal flow. And um, with your, have you had to tighten up or change any of your Meller marketing or social media marketing to, uh, to succeed in today's market? You know, I thought about that. I was actually just talking to somebody about that today. You know, I thought, man, it's really been kind of slow lately, you know, and yeah. just kind of wondering, like, do I need to adjust my marketing? Cause that's always, you know, you got to look at all the things, right. It's not just the marketing. Sometimes your message is off. Sometimes, you know, you're not pulling a good enough list or you're not hitting them enough times. I see that a lot with people just getting into the business where they mail them like once or twice. And it's like, well, that didn't work. Well, you've got to give it time, yeah. you know? And I think that's like the big thing to remember in this business. A lot of, this is a long-term thing. This isn't a get rich quick. This isn't an overnight thing. If you are smart and savvy and are able to ride out times like this, you know, this is the ride it out time in my mind. This totally, it, it, it reminds me of 2008, but not completely because houses are selling really yeah, well. It's like sitting. the opposite of 2008, but, but, but still <laughs> yeah. a problem, right? Yeah. The deal flow is a problem here. You know, yeah. it's like, you can't get any deal. Like it's harder to get them. But what I've done is just really focused on getting deals that I know I can get, which is the probates. And also we've actually, I want to encourage people, like if you're doing deals already, if you're getting some leads, keep following up. I cannot stress that enough. I can't tell you how many deals we've gotten from follow-up, just working old leads in the system um, is like a great way to get deals because they're already a little bit warm at that point because you've been talking to them for a while. Um, so really like keeping a follow-up going and then also working referrals. We just launched a referral campaign you know, because we've done so many houses reaching out to previous owners and just saying, Hey, if you have a friend, a coworker, you know, your neighbor, somebody on your sports team that has a house that they want to sell, send us the lead. And if we buy the property, we'll send you 500 bucks. You know, have you done, have you seen good results from that? Oh God. Yeah. That deal we just did, we made $98,000 net after everything. And that lead cost me $500 because it was a referral. And that lady has sent me three properties that we bought. Oh man, I'll spend $500 for a lead all oh, day. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. <laughs> People don't realize that sounds like a lot, but if you're doing any kind of serious marketing, $500 is nothing. Yeah, and that's $500 at close, I'm sure, right? Or is that $500 for somebody who's interested in selling? I pay at closing. We got to close it. You oh know, yeah, I, I mean, five hundred dollars for a rando lead. <laughs> People just yeah. send you garbage, you know. It's a but big difference, yeah. So five hundred dollars at close. I mean, geez, that's that that's pennies on on ninety eight thousand dollars. Right, and you think about people like they need money right now, and in my mind, it's like, well, here's a this is a win win. Like, I need a property. You probably need some cash. Let's help each other out. And they need know? to sell it. So yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, uh, so what's what what's next for you? I know I know you said dealer deals are getting slow. Uh, you opened up your referral program. Are you making any types of changes or, or doing anything different uh, than you're than you're used to, as far as investments um, go? No, I'm sticking to my criteria. It's worked for me. I think it's what's allowed me to be around in the business for for so long. And I am starting to see a shift now, and, and I think that shift is coming very quickly. So I'm still focusing where I need to. And actually, we've had an uptick in appointments and calls recently. Okay. So I think people are starting to um, make some moves, you know, with okay. that stuff. So I think that's good. But I also, now that all the moratoriums have been lifted for evictions and foreclosures and things like that's starting to happen a lot. So I think we'll see a flood of properties, you know, come July, August, September. Um, and I want to be ready for that. Yeah, I think the follow-up will probably help you out with that quite a bit, won't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. keep, like, you got to do follow-up. <laughs> if you don't, you need to get a system for that if you're not doing it, because it's there's gold in the follow-up, for sure. Do you do any type of commercial real estate? Uh, no, not right now, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah. I was talking to you earlier, you're talking about adaptive reuse stuff. Like, what, what have you... Look, you're looking into getting into that. Is that uh, give me an example of what that means and, and what you would do with that? Yeah, so it's something I'm interested in. I haven't fully committed to that path yet, but there comes a time when it's time to level up. And I've done residential for a really long time, and this could be a good next step for me. But basically, what it is is you're taking like an old building, like a commercial building, you know, warehouses or old office spaces or hotels, you know, like you were saying earlier, like (laughs) there's so many like big commercial spaces right now that are just sitting vacant because of COVID, you know, people couldn't pay the rent and they eventually had to leave or whatever. And so there's all these spaces sitting there. So I would really love to create something that um, you can take that space and turn it into new space. So having like uh, mixed use development. So where you've got like maybe restaurants or some you know, I talked about a microbrewery or a bar or wellness center or a yoga studio, things like that with maybe some apartments or something like that. That's in a good area. And I think the area is really key to this, that strategy, but it is something that I I just think would be really fun. It would be really fun to plan out a big project like that. So I just took a trip out to Virginia and I've, I've lived in, uh, I've never lived on the East coast. And that's where all the old, beautiful buildings that I love pretty much exist. Out here in California, you have some, but it's just so much younger than the East Coast. And I was driving through, um, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, and they have just these really, really old cathedrals and the stained glass everywhere that are for sale. I've never seen a church for sale in my entire life. And they're not very big. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, man, that would be like an amazing thing. You could do something with that. Uh, I saw old uh, fire station for sale. And I'm like, I know that there's a pole in there that goes. I was was like, how cool would it be to have a house with a fire? You know what I mean? Like as an Airbnb, uh, people would love to stay in an old fire station. In fact, I think I've seen a couple of episodes of like, I don't know, short-term rental, whatever, where somebody took a fire station and made it a house. And that just seems like such a killer idea uh, to, to, to reuse and repurpose some of these older buildings that are, are no longer in use. Out here in California, I know one of the things they're doing is they're making a lot of them just these rundown 
weed dispensaries and I can't stand it. I would, there should be something better than that. You know what I mean? Like uh, they just, it's a bunch of old bill. It looked like an old house that somehow zoned commercial and they'll turn it to a dispensary. Yeah. Are we I talking agree. old gross, like paper street? Yeah. <laughs> like in yeah. Pike club, you know, the old house. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Well, awesome. Man. So, uh, what else? I, you, you talked about doing some coaching now. What is it uh, that you offer up as far as coaching? Like, what's your philosophy on that? Uh, well, love the coaching. I started that last year during COVID um, when everything kind of shut down. It's something I always wanted to do. And I kind of was doing just randomly just for people that I knew because I have a pretty good network. And so during that time, a lot of people were kind of feeling stuck or like, what's next? What should I do? And I was getting a lot of calls and I thought, man, if I could just do this all day, like this would be really fun. Like it'd be a fun job just to talk to people about their business all day long. And so I hired a coach because I firmly believe in coaching and mentoring. And I've, I've had several business coaches over the years. And so I, I found a coach and he coached me up and we started a, I started the coaching business and really focusing on working, um, I work with men and women, but I'm really focused on working with women just because there's not enough of us out here doing this. So I do work with a lot of women. Um, and I have three pillars that I coach on because I firmly believe these three things go together and it's encouragement, education, and empowerment. And what I mean by that is when you get started in real estate, you have to have the right mindset. Like it's so important because so many things happen to you, you get knocked down, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to get back up? Are you going to be resilient? And you've got to have a good mindset in order to be in this business because it's a hard business to be in. You know, it it's it's tough. And but it's also very worth it. You yeah. know, like it's provided a lifestyle for me that I love and I can, you know, be with my kids when I need to be with them and I don't have to miss anything. I can I really have built the business around the life that I want to have. And so but you got to have the right mindset for that. It all starts with that. And then the education obviously is like the nuts and bolts of how to do everything. People need yeah. help with that. But then the empowerment piece is the last one. And my real goal is to be able to encourage and educate enough people so that they'll go out and empower others to do the same. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and have you, you've been coaching for a year now? Almost a year. What would you have? What would you say your biggest success story is from one of your students? Oh, um, I, I think my, one of my favorites is, um, it was funny cause we started down the path of real estate and then she decided she wanted to be a life coach. And so I actually helped her coach. Uh, I helped coach her in starting a coaching business, <laughs> <laughs> which was not what I was expecting, you know, but my job as a coach is to, you know, help people get the right answers. And at the time, you know, we were talking and it seemed like, you know, she was talking about um, getting into real estate and stuff, but then she also kept talking about this, this life coaching thing. And after a couple of calls, you know, I just told her, I said, look, as your coach, I'm going to be honest with you here. Like, I kind of get the feeling you're more into the life coaching thing than the real estate coaching thing. Is that accurate? And she kind of thought about it and she said, yeah, I think you're right. And I said, okay, well, I'm not trying to like talk myself out of a job here, but what if we switched and just started building a coaching business for you? And then we can go back to the real estate. So I went ahead and I built a strategic plan for her real estate business. But at the same time, we started building this coaching business and she is 
she's killing it <laughs> with the coaching business. So is a, a life coach, like is she just coaching people to, you know, better health, fitness, wealth, stuff like, like everything, or is it, does she have a specific, like yours was real estate. What, what's her specific. So I love her specific because it's very unique. She okay. coaches middle-aged men on mindset and, and these are successful, wealthy men that have just, they've achieved, you know, a high level of success, but they're still left feeling empty for some reason. Like it's never enough. It's never enough. And so, you know, they, you reach the point in your midlife where it's like, why did I do all this? What was all this for? What's my purpose? You know, and kind of like that midlife crisis, but instead of going out and buying a Corvette or something, you know, she's helping them dig into, you know, these things of why do you not feel fulfilled? And it's, a, it could be for a variety of reasons, but I think it's great that she's working with men like that and that men are actually more willing to come forward and be vulnerable these days. Like that stuff never happened when I got started. There was no women in this business and there was no vulnerability talk at all. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, I got a, I got a tagline for it. Be I'll coach you through your crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to share that with her. That's clever. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, so, so speaking of that, um, you you've been around for 18 years and you've seen you've seen a crash you've now going through a pandemic uh, you've seen high markets and low markets uh what is it that you see uh past present or future i guess that that really bruises your bananas in the real estate world like what's the biggest lie being told in real estate right now there's a lot but my biggest one is this whole hustle and grind thing like that really bruises my bananas, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because, and I don't know, it, it could be, maybe it's an age thing. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old, but there is this, there is this myth out there that you have to like hustle and grind 24 seven and don't sleep and wake up at four o'clock in the morning and you got to do 75 hard. And like, <laughs> and I'm not saying any of these things are bad. They're not. They're not, but I just feel like it's so important to do what you want to do. Like you really need to figure out your own path. And, and I'm not saying this doesn't require hard work, but it can't be at the expense of everything else. I mean, it's, it's, this is a cautionary tale. Like this ruined my marriage. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. it was, it was just, you know, you get into this like work mode and you can't ever get yourself out of it because you think, and it, and it sucks, right? Because you think you're doing something, you think you're like providing for your family, you're doing a good thing and your heart's in the right place doing this stuff because you want to provide and you want to be successful. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when it's at the expense of everything else, that's where there's a problem. And so I'm really just like, I'm really tired of hearing about how you got to like hustle and grind all the time because it doesn't have to be that way. You can work less and work with your natural body rhythms. Like I hate waking up early in the morning. I don't sleep late, but for me, it doesn't like, I don't do well in the mornings. I'm a night person. I have more energy towards the afternoon and the evening. And I know where my times are, where I'm most productive. And I make sure that I'm working during those times. And so that the work that you're doing is the important work. It's not the busy work. It's the really working on your business type stuff. 
And if you work smart enough and if you have the right people around you and systems and processes and delegate, there is no reason why you need to be hustling and grinding 24-7. Like if you're doing that, you need some help. You, You need somebody on your team because you can't wear all the hats. You can't, you will burn yourself out in this business. I promise you. Yeah, I like to call that uh, the state late Olympics, right? And I, I will never be a gold medalist in the state late Olympics because I'm, I'm in the military and you can see people that will will work uh, until the sun goes down and then they get home and it, they're just beat down. And for me, I, t- I like, don't get mad at me because I can get uh, everything that you can get done in a full day done before 10 o'clock. Like, don't get, exactly. you know, I, I work efficiency, uh, uh, efficiently, I, I get I get done when I need to get done and then I go live my life. Right. Uh, and yeah, a hundred percent. And I heard a quote the other day, somebody said that, that it really resonated with me. It says, I'm, I'm making a mountain out of layers of paint. So I'm just painting on another coat every day, getting something done towards my goals. And I love that because everybody, it, it, it is true. Like if you work hard and you bust your butt and you hustle and grind, you will get what you are trying to get, but you got to make dang good and well sure that what you're trying to get is what you really want. Because if it's not what you want, if what you really want is money, well then good. You've got a bunch of paper. I think what you really want is freedom. So if you want freedom, then why don't you take a little bit of the freedom that you have right now and use it and then put some effort towards making some money because eventually it will come if you do, if you make the right decisions. But everybody who sacrifices everything on the front end so that they can enjoy it on the back end, well, you just missed the whole journey. You really did. And that's, that's, I tell you that if there's one person in my life that reminds me of that, it's my wife, because I, I, I did what you're talking about. I put myself in a hospital. I ended up having a tension headache. Uh, and, and, and for those of you who don't know what that means, that means that my spinal cord was trying to touch my eyes. <laughs> That's pretty much what that means. It put pressure on my brain because I was so uh, fatigued, dehydrated, and stressed that my brain had pressure on it. And it gave me a headache that I couldn't bear. And the reason was, was because I was working, uh, I was working five days a week at the Navy dive school as a, as a dive instructor. I'd get off work. I would go uh, to my my apartment complex. I was renovating myself like an idiot. And then on the weekends, I would drive to Mobile, Alabama and run uh, baseball tournaments all weekend. Me and my brother had a baseball business or still have a baseball business. We were working. I did that six weeks straight or I had a plan to. And on the fifth week, I went, sent an email. I stood up. And I hit my knees and could not see, couldn't hear. Everything was ringing. Uh, All I could do was call for my wife. They put me in the hospital, spinal tap. Three days later, I got out because I had a tension headache that they could not figure out why. So stressed. Ever since that moment, I take time. I do get up early. I take time out of my day to meditate. I do Wim Hof breathing techniques. I never thought I would be doing breathing techniques. I'm doing them. Because they they chill me out. I get I get rev, revved up. I get going. It's hard for me to stop. So I have to hit the main breaker, reset, take some time, and then move forward with a clear mind. And I, I think that's what you're talking about. I've learned that lesson. So if you're listening out there and you are burnt, beating yourself down, you ain't going to last. Take some yeah. breaks. Do the stuff you like going. to do. <laughs> You'll burn yourself out. You will. It, it's just a matter of time. It's not if you will. It's when you will, because it will happen. It's not sustainable. And that's what that really drives me crazy. 
Cause you hear it being preached. And a lot of times it's younger people. And it's like, don't be telling all these younger people that it's okay to be like that. There's another way. It doesn't mean it's a lazy way. It's just what way works best for you. I guess it's not going to sacrifice your health or your family. Exactly. Well, speaking of that, what, what is it that you do for fun or, or to de-stress? Um, I like to drink wine. <laughs> That's just a small thing. Um, <laughs> sure. Sure. Do you drink wine while you, uh, you do your art? I do. I do. I love to make art. Um, I'm actually a published artist and that's, that's a really big stress reliever for me. I like to be outside. You know, I go outside and play with my kids. We sit in the hot tub, you know, my older kids, cause I've got grown kids too. They come over and we hang out just think, just being with my family is really the best thing being with my family, making art. I do like to read. So I have a ton of books. I'm always reading something. I think do you ever go probably- to, do you ever go to Schlitterbahn? There's so many people there. I, I've got this like averse feeling to big crowds now. <laughs> that place is crazy. My kids like it. Um, I haven't been since I was probably like in middle school a hundred years ago. Oh my God. I go insane. I water parks are my jam. I love water parks. I'm a grown man. I'm I'm almost 34. I lose my mind at a water park. I don't know what it is. Me and my daughter, when we go. It's it, it it's like she's got a, a big brother all of a sudden because I I lose it. Uh, and I think that's because when I grew up in Lake Charles, my dad would always take us over to Slitterbond, which is to me the greatest water park in the United States. That's probably an overstatement, but it's the greatest one that I've been to. And I've been to a few, um, but I love water parks. I thought I should bring that up because you're in, in San Antonio. <laughs> so is it the one is it is it the Schlitterbahn in New Braunfels? I think so. Yeah. Isn't that, it's right outside of San Antonio, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Just checking. Cause they, you know, they built one in Houston too. Well, in Galveston, there's a Schlitterbahn also now in Galveston. Yeah. By Moody oh, Gardens. My God. I'm going to Galveston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not as good as the one in New Brunswick, cause I, it's pretty nostalgic to me. Like I just remember being dumped off into like, was it the, the Rio, not the Rio Grande. What's the name the, of the, uh, the Comal. That's the name of the river that goes through there. Yeah. Oh man. Is it the Comal or Guadalupe? They both go. I think it was Guadalupe. Yeah. Either way, it. it was awesome. I've not been back to San Antonio. I've not been back to Texas in a long time. Other, I fly into Houston whenever I go home to Louisiana. But, but yeah, I'd love to go back. Yeah, you should well, check it out. Well, cool. Hey, <laughs> Melissa, this has been great. I uh, if if there's if there's any way to wrap this up, I think the best way to do it would be to ask you, how can people get a hold to you? Uh, where can they find you? Where can they learn about you? Anything that you want to plug in, go ahead and, uh, and let us know. Sure. Thank you. Um, best way to find me and everything I'm doing is on my website. So it's the Melissa Johnson.com T H E M E L I S S A J O H N S O N.com. And on there, there's, um, I'm pretty proud of the website because I just rebuilt it myself, but we've got um, the podcast is there. So I, I do host a podcast. Um, there's a link a page for that um, about me. So all the podcasts I've been on, if you want to listen to any of those episodes, um, those are all there. I also have a free uh, five day challenge to start your business. So that is free and available on the site. And then on the first page um, at the bottom are all my social links. So YouTube, uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, those links are all there. I have a lot of free content that I put out for people. So if you go to my YouTube channel and subscribe, there's tons and tons of videos. And I try to keep them short to, you know, two to three minutes long, but 
just everything about business and mindset and leadership, uh, personal development, um, real estate, all those, that type of content is there for free. Perfect. Awesome. And if you're looking to sell a house uh, off the market, then go ahead and contact Melissa. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I forgot to mention too, my coaching also is on that page on the website too. So you can see the different um, levels of coaching too that I have. It's all one-on-one personalized to each individual. And that's if you're, is that if you're looking to get into flipping houses or that just coaching in general? Uh, Both. Because I believe business principles are the same no matter what business you're in. I do coach a lot of people in real estate, so I'm happy to do that. But if you're in another industry and you're looking for some help, I can help there too. All right, Melissa, it's been awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast, where we give you the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash gorillastatepod.